Our most dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather at our church building to take a close look at uh, the chain of salvation, the links to this chain, and to understand uh, clearly that uh, our salvation is completely of you, Father. And uh, that's a magnificent thing. And uh, help us to do our very best by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand these deep doctrines, these deep things from the mind of God. But at the end, help us to just embrace the fact that our salvation is completely of you, Father. And that is a magnificent gift, and help us to never take that for granted. Help us to not use your grace as a license to sin, but help us to cherish that grace even more. And so, Father, join with us now tonight and uh, guide me and uh, help me to articulate clearly the truths found in God's Word. And we thank you for this opportunity and pray, pray that you'd bless it. We pray this in the matchless name of your precious and most dearest Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we get started, <clears throat> the first outline that I gave you did you ever catch the uh, quotes from J.I. Packard? And if you didn't, let me just read it to you, because I know I forgot to touch on it. I had two quotes on the very first night, and the first one from J.I. Packard. And James Packard said this, Christianity is a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it. End of quote. I think that's a magnificent quote because really that touches on the essence of our salvation. It's entirely of God. And, and so if we can understand that and rely on that, how blessed we're going to be. Now, Charles Spurgeon said this, and I'm going to read you something here before we actually get started in our text. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, let us hold fast tenaciously, doggedly, with a death grip to the truth of inspiration of God's word. I love that. We need to take God's word and grip it and hold it and never let go of it. Because it's the only truth that we have as believers. Now I want to read this to you real quick. Um, I'm a fan of John MacArthur. And he wrote something I felt was really powerful. And so I just wanted to share it to you. Psalm 119, verse 142, 151, and 160. Thy law is truth, and all thy commandments are truth, and the sum of thy word is truth. Now, John MacArthur said this about that verse. He says, Scripture is the source of divine truth. He's right. He said this, It amazes me how many people can spend so much time searching for truth but ignore the Bible. It's true. He continues and he says, God never intended for truth to be mysterious or unattainable. His word is a repository of truth containing every principle we need for life and thought. As Christians... We are those who walk in truth. 
That's how Jesus described us when he prayed to the Father. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. Similarly, John said, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. 3 John verse 4. In contrast, unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness, thus making themselves target for the wrath of God, Romans 1.18. To love God is to love truth. To love truth is to love God's word. I agree with that, and I thought that was powerful, and I, I just wanted to share that with you because it tied together so wonderfully with Charles Spurgeon's quote. So with that, we're continuing in the perseverance of the saints. And I really need to be honest with you folks. I thought I was done with the perseverance of the saints, except for one specific passage that I'm going to share with you. And I thought I was all done outlining perseverance of the saints until the Lord pressed on my heart where we're going tonight. And so I found myself putting together another lesson plan. So tonight, your notes say the perseverance of the saints, further evidence. There's further evidence that I can show you based on God's word to prove the perseverance of the saints, the eternality of the believer's salvation. And I gave you another passage of scripture, Matthew 24, 13, which says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, the P in tulip as already mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, stands for perseverance. But like other terms represented by the acronym TULIP, perseverance is somewhat misleading. Now I say that because it suggests that the continuing of faith and obedience is accomplished by the believer alone. It suggests that. Catch what I said. It suggests that. But indeed, the believer does persevere in faith and godliness. But this is due to the gracious, divine work of God on behalf of the believer. It's God who is responsible for doing that persevering for us. He causes us to persevere. Now, I've already said this to you, but I want to repeat it. The perseverance is really the preservation. In other words, we are preserved by God. We persevere as believers in Jesus Christ because we are preserved by God. So I have heard it said, and so have you probably, a better term is the preservation of the saints. Now, it's not wrong to think that it's the preservation of the saints because we are going to persevere. But only because somebody is preserving us to persevere. You see, if left to our own strength, if God never intervenes in any one of our lives, left by ourselves on our own, with our own strength, we will never persevere. It won't happen. It's only because we are 
preserved by God's grace that we are able to persevere at all. Next week, I'm going to uh, play the CD I brought tonight. Dave said he didn't know how to, to, to do that. Um, Josh had told me he does. I want to play that song, and I think this chorus that I want to play for you, I'm going to play it over and over and over again. And, 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 and the reason being is because it's all about grace. It's all about, in this chorus, what God does for us. It's by grace. It's God's grace that you and I persevere in our faith. It's God's grace that you and I are able to be obedient and persevere unto the end. Once again, it rests on divine work of God. Thus, the doctrine of perseverance has to do with the permanency of our salvation. So here's how it works. This verb, to save, look at the Matthew 24, 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved. This verb, to save, appears in the Bible in various tenses. <clears throat> that is, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. In other words, there is a past, there is a present, and there is a future dimension of our salvation. Our salvation began in eternity past. It was realized in all of our lives in real time. And the future dimension of salvation looks forward to heaven when we will be finalized in our salvation. So our salvation began in eternity past, is realized in real time, and it looks forward to heaven. That's why the New Testament speaks of enduring to the end. Promising that he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, it's sad to say that some Christians believe that a Christian can have assurance, but his or her present state of salvation may be called into question. That they may be confident that at the moment he or she is in a state of grace, yet lack assurance. Lack assurance that he or she will continue steadfast in the faith. There's people who believe that. They believe that they are currently satisfied and assured of their faith, but they're not satisfied and assured that they'll continue in that state. And everyone that I've ever met always bases their belief on what they're going to do to keep themselves there. They never look to the divine grace of God the Father. They see themselves. I said to you that if it were up to us, we would not persevere. It's impossible. And that's the beauty of this doctrine. It's not up to us. It's up to God. You see, these people believe it is possible to fall away from grace and to lose the salvation one 
one they presently enjoy. Now, the Reformed view, the Calvinistic view, believe that we can have assurance not only in our present state, but also in our continued state and our future state. In our permanent state. I like that. Do you understand that our salvation is permanent? It's fixed. It will endure. It can't end. Can we falter along the way to our permanent salvation state? Yes. Come, come spend a day with me. Our salvation is a permanent state because this assurance for the future rests on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now let's look at this from another angle. Point number one, the merits of grace. Friends, the grounds of our justification is based on the merit of grace. Merit of no mere temporary value, but of eternal value and efficacy. Why? Because the merit of grace perseveres in our behalf. I think it was last week. Remind me if it wasn't. Did I not say last week that if the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not true, then all the doctrines of grace fall like a house of cards. It's true. If this doctrine is not true, then nothing in the doctrines of grace are true. This, in a sense, is the foundation, the underpinning, the undergirding of the entire chain of our salvation. The merit of grace perseveres in our behalf. So if that be the case, let's look at election now. Our election is likewise in Christ. And thereby, there is absolutely no danger or even the slightest possibility that Christ will lose his own election. Now, let's break away from the chase here. The question is, Will Jesus Christ lose those whom God has elected in him from eternity past? That's really the question. Will Jesus Christ lose those whom God has elected in him from eternity past? Well, the answer is absolutely not. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me, emphatic language, folks, will come to me. All that God the Father gives Jesus Christ will come to him. 
and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. And then he says again, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is so magnificent. What more needs to be said? That is so clear. All that the Father elected from eternity past, and He gave them to Jesus Christ, you and I, Jesus says, I won't lose one of you. Well, now I've heard men say, well, I'm going to jump out of His hands. Oh, goodness gracious. Do we have a weak Savior? Jump out of His hands? He's not going to let go, He said. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So in a sense, we have two people holding on to us. We got the Lord Jesus Christ and we got God the Father. And we're going to jump out of his hands. I, I was talking to Lori going home last week and I said, you know, our dear friend such and such believes that it's, it's heretical to deny the eternality of the believer in Jesus Christ. He, he, he believes that. He, he believes that if somebody believes that and teaches that, that's heresy. That's how insulting, insulting that teaching is to him. Now, I won't go that far. And I'm kind of critical sometimes. Lori will tell me you're too critical. I can't go that far. But I'm telling you, a friend of mine really believes that, that that's, that's just insulting, and it is. Can you imagine God the Father, God the Son holding on to us and just letting go and losing us? And now we're headed to hell. Holy cow. What an insult to the Father. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If that ain't enough, my Father who has given them to me, he's greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. How clear can it be? Friends, it is impossible for God's elect to fully and finally fall away from the state of grace. Do you remember where that came from, that phrase? It came from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Did I take it out? Oh, I don't think I did. Hang on a second. Page 
<laughs> Let me read this to you again. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, The Perseverance of the Saints. Point number one. They whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Well said. Point number two. This perseverance of the saint depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election. What we're talking about right here, right now. Flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Point number three, nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, excuse me, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, having their hearts hardened and their conscience wounded, hurt and scandalized others, and bring temporal, catch that, temporal judgments upon themselves. End of quote. These great men of God pen an absolutely accurate biblical treatise on the perseverance of the saints. The believer in Jesus Christ, it is impossible, impossible for God's elect to fully and finally fall away from a state of grace. But it is possible for a Christian to fall into grievous sin for a season. Now, Scripture is replete with examples of believers who have fallen into grievous sin. The first one that I'd like to share with you is David. How about David? He committed every conceivable sin because of one sin, the sin of pride. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. You see... David was the king of Israel and he decided he wasn't going to go to war that particular spring because he's the king of Israel. He's the mighty king of Israel. He's going to stay home and do what he wants. And look at the season of sin he found himself in. He committed every conceivable sin there was to commit against God. He broke every single commandment. Hi guys, good evening. Hi Jason. 
evening to you. Well, we got another one in Scripture. We got David. How about the prodigal son? Remember the story about the prodigal son? The prodigal son, he left his father's homestead to spend a season squandering his inheritance. You folks know the story. The son found himself wallowing with the swine of the world. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. What happened to that man? What was the end result of the prodigal son? He what? He was, wasn't he? He was lying with the swine. But what was the end result? He sure was. He came home, didn't he? He was only in that condition for a season in his life. He was preserved by God the Father. That season was real, but that season wasn't continual. He repented, he confessed of his sin, and he went home. And by the way, what did his father do for him? When he was off in a distance, what did his father do? He received him unto himself, did he not? His father didn't turn his back on him, did he? His father didn't judge him and throw him into the lake of fire, did he? He persevered. But it wasn't the prodigal son persevering on his own power. David didn't persevere on his own power. You and I don't persevere on our own power. How about Peter? The apostle Peter. He denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Yet Peter exhorted believers to seek the true assurance promised in the gospel. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Be diligent to make your call and election sure. You see, these men fell headstrong into grievous sin for a season, but their fall was neither full nor final. They were restored to repentance and grace. And loved ones, the Apostle Peter calls you, calls me, calls us to pursue assurance of our salvation with diligence. Why? Because it is the assurance of our election. It's the assurance of our election which translates into an assurance of our salvation. In other words, all of God's elect are saved. So if we can be sure that we are the elect, 
then we can also be sure that we are and will be saved. I forgot to bring it tonight. I was bringing another book to you. I'll bring it next week. We've got time. But it's saved without a doubt. It's an old book. It's by John MacArthur. He wrote it because of people who believe you can lose your salvation. And for the poor people who live on this earth as apparently believers in Jesus Christ who have no assurance. By the way, the, 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 the book First John, do you know what the theme is? The assurance of your faith. That's the main theme of that whole book. John wrote that book so that the believer in Jesus Christ would be assured of his salvation and would have full assurance in this life. So if we can be sure that we are the elect, then we can also be sure that we are and will be saved. Saved in the past, in the present, and in the future. Yes, True believers, note the word I'm using, true believers, can have radical falls, but such falls are only temporary and never permanent. Misty. Oh, yeah, very much. Sit tight for a minute, just for a minute, and we'll talk about it. I'm heading that way. I'm heading right in that direction. Okay, so your question's outstanding. Uh, Real quickly, how many have heard, who are you to judge? We're not to judge. Have you heard that? Heard it today. Did you? How did, in what context, Jason? Oh. Yeah. Are we not to judge everything? I gave you a quote the first week. Test all opinions and utterances on the altar of biblical fidelity. You're judging. You're going to judge what that person is saying. Is that what he's saying accurate? We are called to judge the fruit of men who proclaim something. How do you determine a false teacher? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. How do you judge that person? By their fruit, by their ministry, by what they teach. You are called to judge. We can't judge the salvation of a man or a woman because I don't know that man or woman's heart, but I can certainly recognize and judge the fruit that comes out of their life. So let me give you another another, another thing to throw at you. 1 John chapter 2, 
Verse 3 through 5, he who says he belongs to me but does not keep my word is a liar and the truth's not in him. John's judging somebody there, isn't he? He's judging the man that says he belongs to Christ but doesn't keep Christ's word, then he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. So I threw that out to kind of stimulate you a little bit. Are we supposed to be judging? Point number two. Look what I have. The apostates of grace. Now I want to stop here and say that all of us have known people who have made a profession of faith and exhibits zeal for Christ. Right. 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 So recognize by a judgment that that person's lost, come alongside them and take that opportunity to somehow present the gospel to them. Good point. Okay. Point number two. Missy, the Lord really pressed this one on my heart too. And that's why I've taken this a step further, further evidence. All of us have known people who have made professions of faith and have exhibited zeal for Christ only to repudiate their profession and turn away from Christ. So I asked this rhetorical question, what, what should we make of this? Well, may I say that their profession was not genuine in the first place? They professed Christ with their mouths and then later committed a real apostasy from that profession. You see, they are like the seed that fell in shallow soil and sprang up quickly only to wither and die. Matthew chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. The sower of the seed. Our Lord gave that perfect parable about people with false professions of faith. There are three different, four different soils, I'm not sure, three or four different soils in that parable, and only one of those soil produced fruit. All the rest was false. They were apostates. You see, what happened in Matthew there in chapter 13 is this. The seed never really took root. They gave some outward signs of conversion, but their conversion was not genuine. They are like those who honor Christ with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, the people that we're talking about, their faith was spurious from the very beginning, from day one. 
Now, into this category of people, we can assign somebody, and I think you all know who I might be talking about. Anybody know? He was part of Jesus' inner circle. Who? Judas. We have a prime example in the New Testament of this very thing, Judas. By the way, the one whom Jesus declared was of the devil from the beginning. Yet he was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the 12 apostles. But he was an apostate. The apostle John said this of these particular people. I quote the scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest or revealed that none of them were of us. Judas Iscariot. Possibly somebody you might be thinking of, Misty. I have seen the people that we are describing here tonight. They they profess to be something they're not. Now, Lori and I just talked about this tonight. I had a very difficult thing I had to do today. I have a subcontractor that I've been doing business with for 20 years. He professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ. He's an elder at a church here in town. And he built a pair of barn doors for me nine months ago. He told me how much. I hired him said, move forward. He built the doors. One week after he built the doors, they buckled. Brought it to his attention. I said, you need to maybe get these doors down and you need to get these doors back to your shop and you need to get them flat on a table and put some steel backers on it to flatten them out and keep them from warping. They'll be fine. I'll take care of it. I think you better come and see it. They're a lot worse than you probably think they are. I will. I'll see them. Okay, he came and saw them. I'll take care of it. Not a problem. That was nine months ago. I asked him a couple weeks ago, I said, when can I count on you taking those doors down, making the new doors and put them back so that I can close this project off? What was in his time frame? It was in January. That wasn't going to work. What does scripture tell me to do when you have a difficulty between a brother? Matthew 18 tells me that I go see that brother and I go alone to see him and talk to him and try to work it out. I did that today. I'm questioning, is, um, did I even deal with a born-again believer in Jesus Christ today? Can I tell you why? Because in my conversation when I came to him, I asked him, if the Lord Jesus Christ came to you to build those doors and contracted with you to build those doors, and those doors buckled and did what they did, would you take those doors down immediately and rebuild those doors for Jesus Christ and do it in a timely manner and take care of the issue and the problem immediately? His response is, I am not building those doors for Jesus Christ. He doesn't believe to do all things unto the Lord, including eating and drinking. When you eat and drink. He separates Christianity from the marketplace where the Christianity should be should be glowing in the marketplace. 
I don't know if he's born again, but boy, I sure questioned it. The true believer in Jesus Christ, he can fall into sin. He can, and for a season. And this brother might be falling into sin, and he might be falling in for a season. I hope that's the case. Matthew 18 says, go to your brother and go to your brother alone. If you work it out, you received your brother. Fantastic. If not, you take two or more witnesses to go see that man again. What for? Not to gang up on him, to establish a communication and try to reconcile the differences. Now, we talked about that. Then the scripture says that if you can't get him to reconcile that way, then you go and you tell it to the church. Now, let me take it one more. When a man serves as an elder in, in an assembly of believers, and he's in sin, and he's unrepented, and he's not going to turn from that sin, Scripture says that you're to tell that elder's sin to the church. What for? Because an elder is to be at a, held at a higher standard. Let there not be many teachers. God holds us to a stricter judgment. I, I don't want to get off onto that. What I want to do is go back and say, here's an example, Misty, that I question. Man, did I deal with a believer? Or did I deal with a non-believer? His response to me that he's not building the doors for Jesus Christ, that's exactly what I'm doing every day of my life. I'm building luxury homes unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's my mindset. His mindset should be the same. He behaved just like a, just like a non-believer. I have non-believing subcontractors that are so moral and ethical, it's unreal. Yeah, I know. It breaks my heart. It really does. We'll see where it goes. The true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he falls into a season of sin... Remember that the Holy Spirit indwells him. And the Holy Spirit is not going to let that man live in that habitual, perpetual, constant, continued state of sin. The Holy Spirit is going to convict that man. And that man's going to repent and turn from that sin at somewhere, at some point, and he's going to walk with God again. Because he is being held, and this, this is where I might be going. I'm praying about it and moving kind of in this direction. He is being held collectively by the triune God. He's got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit keeping him. Let's pray that that brother that I met today will be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit in turn and take care of his problem. Amen. Yeah. Yeah.
The Apostle John, in the passage I read you, John acknowledges that some did leave the company of believers. And they left the company of believers because they were never believers themselves. They were apostates. John declared that they were really not of us. And their departure manifested or revealed their true state. Their true state was they weren't believers in Jesus Christ. They had a false profession. Now, all of you know that Matthew talks about the tares growing with the wheat. You familiar with that? The tares are non-believers in the church growing with the true believers, the wheat. But what does Jesus tell us not to do? He tells us, don't try to pluck them out. We'll pluck the wrong ones. Who does the plucking? Well, Jesus also in the Gospel of Matthew talks about separating the sheep from the goats. The sheep is the true believers and the goats are the false believers. So unfortunately, the contemporary visible church in America has tares growing with the wheat, has goats feeding with the sheep. It's not our place to remove them. In due time, they'll be exposed. Faith. Perfect. You're, yeah, you're right on. I don't like the word perseverance as much. And the reason being is because I recognize so clearly that I am persevering because of what God's doing to preserve me. But the perseverance of the saints is accurate. The true believer in Jesus Christ will persevere. He will. All the way to the end. Right. Yeah. Something I'm going to do that I'll kind of let the cat out of the sack a little bit or out of the box is I'm going to do a little study on 
sanctification. Sanctification isn't looked at as being one of the doctrines of grace, but is a byproduct of grace, is a byproduct of salvation. So I think we need to have a good understanding of what, what, what really is sanctification. Well, we know that it means set apart, holy. You're doing good. When you look at the believer in Jesus Christ, the true believer, and he's going to persevere to the end, it's all tied together. I said to you, it's a, it's a chain, and all the links of that chain all work together as one. And it includes regeneration, being born again. But all that took place, eternity past, when God foreknew, foreordained is a better word. Sure, of course he did, yeah. But, but really it's foreordination, just like it's predestination or predetermined. Much better words that make sense. Okay, so we have foreknowledge, we have predestination, we have election, we have calling, we have regeneration, then we have sanctification, and then we're going to have... Oh, also, let me back up. I forgot justification. Yeah, we've got to get justification in there. And then at the end, we're going to have glorification. No. Right. And that's because sanctification really isn't a, a doctrine of grace. Sanctification is a byproduct of salvation and grace. But you can't be saved and not be sanctified. Correct. As I say, the beginning and end of it, it doesn't. Yeah. 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 You guys are, you guys should be teaching this. You all get this very well. You're doing great. Really. I mean, I mean that sincerely. You're doing great. Simplest terms. Being set apart. And I'm going to stop there because I don't want to give away too much. But sanctification has one little difference. There's what God does, and then there's what the believer does in harmony with what God does. Now, God has to do his part first, and the believer comes right behind him on it. How does that work? I'll show you in the very near future.
I don't want to give it away yet. Anybody got any other? Melody. I'm, I'm going to look at you and tell you, I don't know what the answer is. What, how long is that season? What, what is the time frame? We give them 10 years? I don't know. I, it's one of those things I, I can't answer. What I can tell you is this, that Hebrews says that God disciplines the sons of disobedience, right? And that discipline is a loving discipline, right? And that's to bring that son to repentance and back to God, fellowship with God, right? Okay. So if a man professes the Lord Jesus Christ, and if that man's living in constant habitual sin and disobedience, and you never see any repentance, you can probably pretty well guess he probably doesn't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God disciplines his sons. And, and, and God's discipline is going to win out. I don't want God to discipline me. Holy cow, I don't want his eyes and ears turned away from me. Peter talks to the husband and says, if you don't love your wives, in that context, the eyes and ears of the Lord are turned away from those who sin against him. I don't want God to turn his face and his ears and his eyes away from me. Don't know how long. I do know that the Holy Spirit's going to win out. He belongs to God. God's not going to leave him there. Or, as Garrett said, God may take him out. Jason. Sure. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6 in response to Jason. Uh, I think it's 6 1. Yeah. Everybody there? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then he continues, Paul, and says, bear one another's burdens. You who are spiritual, who's that? Is that Pastor Jim? Is that the elders? Who? 
Rich, say it louder. The elect are the, the ones who are saved. Believers. Believers. Yeah. My purpose to go see this gentleman today, and I, I, it took me a long time. I had to pray and pray and pray about it. I had to, I had to make sure my heart was right. And then I prayed and prayed and asked God to prepare his heart. I, I, I recognize I need to go in a spirit of gentleness to try to restore that man. And I left and said to his wife, my whole purpose and why I would like to meet with him again, if at all possible, is I'd like to reconcile and restore our differences and win a brother. First John 2, 24, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Right behind that passage that we just read about they went out from us, then he talks about how we are in contrast to them. I love it. John wasn't content to leave it. Here's the guy that makes a profession of faith and he leaves the assembly of believers and went out from us so that he would be manifested, revealed to us he didn't belong to us. And I said to you, the, 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 departure, the departure manifested or revealed their true state. They weren't of us. And yet those who departed are contrasts with those who have been anointed by God, you and I. There's the difference. Those who have God's word abiding in them. And John makes it clear that if the word truly abides in them, then they will abide in Christ and receive the promise of eternal life. He said so. Friends, a true believer does not persevere through the power of his own will. I can't stress that enough. If left to ourselves, we'd never be saved and we could never, ever keep ourselves. It's impossible. So are Arminian friends. There, there are so many things that are wrong with their theological position. And everything in the doctrines of grace should be called into question by them. And indeed they are. How did they get saved? How are they saving themselves? What a difference. It's a chasm almost to me, the difference. Now, I got a book at home. <clears throat> Wonderful man in our church, Michael. Love him. He's older and he said, you love the word. And here's all these books I've collected over the years. I want you to have them. And I went, whoa, I shouldn't be lusting over a book collection. But wow, it was nice. In it, he has a book, Arminian Theology. And I thought, oh, I got to read that. I started reading it. I had to put it down. I just, I can't wrap my mind around their thinking. Now, I want to tell you one of the greatest men of God, and uh, it was George Whitfield. You guys know him, George Whitfield? 
Calvinist. One of the greatest gospel preachers, great man of God. He lived in the same days as John Wesley. Anybody know anything about the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley? They were Arminian. And they started the Methodist church, the denomination. And George Whitfield says, John Wesley's going to be in heaven before me. That's how much he respected and loved John Wesley, though he was chasms away theologically. Wasn't Andrew Rappaport, wasn't that dude incredible? Oh, what a gift to us all. The one thing that he really stressed over and over is you, you and I can't save anybody. We want to, but we can't. What saves men and women? The gospel. So understand that when we're dealing with our Arminian brothers and sisters, present the scriptures clear and concisely and get out of the way. God's Holy Spirit is so much more powerful than we are. And it goes the same with that gospel. The power unto salvation is the gospel. That's why it's so critical that we have a clear and concise understanding of the gospel. The gospel is the power through the Holy Spirit. By the way, did you all know that the word of God doesn't need defending? We, we don't need to defend the word of God. It defends itself. And let me go as far as saying this. If somebody rejects the word of God, that doesn't mean the word of God isn't still true. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of God endureth how long? Forever. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted beside a river, who in due season will not wither, but will produce fruit. I love the word of God. I said to you, the true believer does not persevere through the power of his own will. God's persevering grace. How about this? God's preserving grace. God's preserving grace makes our perseverance both possible and actual. Because once again, God's decree is immutable. What does that mean? Anybody remember what immutable means? Not changing. God changes not. 
Okay, so if what I just said is true, and indeed you know it is, if it were possible that we would not persevere, we'd be calling into question God's honesty, would we not? We wouldn't say it, but are we not calling him a liar? Well, I don't think any man or woman is going to call God a liar that we know. So let me ask you, are you implying it? If you call into question the eternality of your salvation, you're calling into question God on every single doctrine of grace. Ooh, I think that's a very dangerous place for any man or woman to be. He'd argue that, Garrett. I'm sure if he was here today, he'd argue that. Oh, even if he came back from heaven, yeah. He, well, you know, there's an old saying, when you're raptured, we'll tell you along the way. <laughs> oh. In other words, God's sovereign purpose to save his elect from the foundation of the world is not frustrated by our weaknesses. Let me read that one more time to you. God's sovereign purpose to save his elect from the foundation of the world is not frustrated by our weaknesses. Now, if the Biber, Biber, if the Bible were to say nothing about the perseverance, if it had nothing to say about the perseverance, what it says about God electing, God's electing grace would be sufficient to convince us of the doctrine of perseverance. Do you understand that statement? Let me say it again. If the Bible were to say nothing regarding the perseverance, what it says about God's electing grace would be efficient to convince us of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But the Bible is not silent on these matters, declaring clearly and often that God will finish what he began. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end. By the way, I got that tape of the song. Remember when I told you? I didn't bring it because I knew Josh wasn't going to be here tonight. He told me he couldn't make it. So I'm hoping he's here next week. I got it ready to go. A cassette, yeah, the little tape. I know I'm dating myself, a cassette, but I want you to hear the song. So hopefully he's here next week and we can all hear it. Huh? He can't? He can't? Yeah. 
Oh, he told me he could play them both. You know what I'll do? I'll just bring in my ghetto blaster. Did you hear Lori? My ghetto blaster only plays CDs. Wow. I'll go find my old 8-track or something next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I'd really be dating myself, wouldn't I? Wow. My daughters think I dress like a geek now, so I might as well. Oh, man. That's good, Jeff. That's good. Friends, in, in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Note that Paul puts the emphasis on God, not man. I think that's critical. Paul puts the emphasis on God, not man. God will complete that, that in which he began. You and I didn't begin anything. I like what Jim says. I love what he says. He says that uh, the only thing that you bring to your salvation, your sin. Ooh, I like that. So if you want to have something to do with your salvation, okay, you bring your sin. That's good. So Paul puts the emphasis on God and not man. In other words, what God has started, God will finish. What God begins, God finishes. Because his work is not left dangling as to what to do. God's not frustrated with the weaknesses that we bring. God is not a victim. God is the victor, capital V. And you and I are His victorious people because of His victory. You see, God's preservation of the saints is not based on a mere abstract deduction from his decree of election. How foolish to think of that. It rests on his free love. A love that is abiding, meaning continuing. A love that nothing can sever. Nothing. Now I want to prove that. We're going to go to my favorite book. Would you please go to the book of Romans with me? Excuse me. I said to you a love that nothing can sever. Now I want to support that and prove that. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, please. I can't stand it. I got to start in verse 28. I like it too much. This is too rich. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to God's purpose. For whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Moreover, whom God predestined, these God also called. And whom God called, these God also justified. And whom God justified, these He also glorified. Verse 31. I said to you that nothing can sever the love of God. Well, Paul asked this great rhetorical question. Well, then... What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a great question. If God can be for you and do all the things that he just mentioned, who can be against you? Verse 32. God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Who's us? Yeah. More specifically, the elect. Those who God foreknew, predestined. Elected, called, justified, and glorified. God who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, whom is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. One more powerful thing that cannot strip you of your salvation. You have the blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. Interceding like, a, like an attorney. He's our advocate. Advocating on our behalf to the Father. So Paul says, who is he who condemns? Is it not Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God? who also makes intercession for us? Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. Holy smokes. Friends, this love, this love is enduring and permanent. And we persevere in grace because God perseveres in his love towards us. I don't know how much more I can say than what Paul has said here. Now, what Paul is doing here is amplifying the general statement he will make next. So in those verses we just read, he's amplifying the general statement he makes next, that you and I are more than conquerors. So let's pick it up in verse 37 now. Verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now look what he says. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I don't know how much clearer scripture can be than what we just read. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You can't sin enough, fall enough, be weak enough. It can't separate you from the love of God. And that was determined before he ever began to create anything. That's how far back your salvation goes and how far forward it's going to go forever. Permanent. I know you guys love Romans. Turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11. Got 10 minutes. Let's wrap it up. Get you home. I said I have further evidence, so let me finish up this evidence. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, please. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There it is again. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more. How much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. If while you were enemies of God, sinners, God reconciled you to himself, now as his children, believers in Christ, you're going to sin now to a point where he's no longer going to reconcile you? No way. While you were yet sinners, enemies of God, you hated him. And he saved you by his grace. Now, do you think for one minute he's going to go that far and leave you alone? You're kidding yourself. Not going to happen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I'm going to run through them fast. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 15 through 20. I'll wait till I don't hear any pages turning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. 
because the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of your calling of excuse me of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints verse 19 and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. <laughs> How exceedingly great his power towards us who believed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, please. I titled it, Further Evidence. We're letting Scripture speak. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul said this, For this reason, we also thank God. Notice who he's thanking. And he thanks God without ceasing. Here's why. Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also, notice this, effectively works in you who believe. It works effectively in you who believe. We use a term, the effectual call of God. It's effectual and it's effective. It's effectual because you are not going to resist it. And because you can't resist it and because it's effective, it's going to keep you to the end. You see how every single doctrine, everywhere we go in God's word is tied to the eternality of the saints? Throw it away. Everything falls like a house of cards. Now Paul said something else that's magnificent. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I'm actually going to go to, through to verse 17. I love this part. Hey, real, real quickly, my, my good friend that I love so much that's Arminian, I asked him, when you want to see one of your friends or your family get saved, how do you pray? Oh, I pray to God. <laughs> how come? Why are you praying to God? Have you? Yeah. Well, let's look at what Paul says. Look at what Paul says. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren. Of course you're bound to thank God. Who else are you going to thank? We don't thank each other. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you. What for? Salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. For the obtaining of the glory for eternal life. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. Now, May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us 
everlasting consolation or everlasting comfort and good hope by grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. (laughs) Is that clear? Isn't that clear? Wow. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. You guys are going to like this one. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. I got a typing error. Darn it. Chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 through 12. I like this one. You guys are going to like it. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life, immortality, to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer for these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know who I have believed in, and he is able to keep that which I've committed until that day. You guys know that song? You guys know it? Or did I just wreck it so bad that none of you could even distinguish it? Pretty bad, isn't it? You knew the words? I love that. <clears throat> the only time I might sound good is if the radio's on really loud and it's drowning me out. Yeah, no, that's bad. <laughs> oh, I love that. I know who I have believed in, and he is able to keep that which I've committed until that day. Titus, one book to the right, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Okay, it's 8.30. Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, there it is again, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Isn't that powerful? Two little verses. And in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, meaning he's immutable, promised before time began. One more. First Peter, please. Chapter 1. 
verses 3 through 5. You folks know this so well. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning, I, I'm going to pick it up right in the very beginning. I, I, can't, I can't skip by verse 2. Everybody there? 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Elect according to your knowledge. It doesn't say that, Jason, does it? Jason, what does it say? Who? Amen. We were elect according to the foreknowledge or the foreordination of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience, catch that, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us or born again us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are, catch the word, kept. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, this further evidence that I presented to you tonight, it's impossible to conclude anything but your salvation is eternal. And in every one of these passages, every one of them, God's divine power is behind the believer's perseverance. God's divine power. But to keep the perseverance of the saints quite simple, the doctrine rests on God's promise of salvation. And we must remember that all human beings are covenant breakers, breaking promises, violating oaths, failing to fulfill vows. But unlike fallen humanity, God is an absolute covenant keeper. He never breaks vows. He never breaks oath. He never breaks promises because he is the supreme promise keeper. I'll call it quits. If the preservation of our salvation depends on what believers themselves do or do not do, then their salvation is only as secure as their faithfulness, which provides no security at all. It's of God. Bless his name. That's why Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said the same exact words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is no other way to approach God except to bless his name. Let's close in a word of prayer. Jeff, would you mind closing us?